Hello, and welcome to Can't Make This Shit Up. I'm Cassie, a true crime enthusiast. Now, Mark, her dad, a true crime professional, a retired traffic homicide detective from South Florida. And we hope you guys enjoy. Hello, everybody. Howdy. So, before we begin, inquiring minds want to know, do you have an update for us on Wasp Spraygate of 2023? I do. And I got my information off uh, the internet and a uh, website called srselfdefense.com. Sounds sounds legit. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a, like a, naturally they try to sell their products and stuff, but they have like the laws and and kind of uh, different things. And one of the questions that's asked is, is like bug spray, wasp spray effective or not versus pepper spray. So basically what they said is that both have toxic side effects, both pepper spray and wasp spray, like temporary blindness, breathing difficulties, and nausea, which is normal for anybody that's ever been sprayed with pepper spray or like CS gas or anything. However, wasp spray has been known to induce erratic behavior, increased heart rate, and other abnormal side effects that pepper spray does not. Oh, so it is a little worse. It is. There is a, not like a rumor, but some people feel that allegedly wasp spray shoots farther and more accurately hmm. than pepper spray. But then they go on to say that their version of pepper spray, whatever model, you know, shoots the same distance, blah, blah, blah. So they started going into their commercial part of it. However, uh, wasp spray requires hospitalization for an antidote where pepper spray does not. You just, it just takes time, you know, rinsing your face off. If you get sprayed with wasp spray, you like have to go to the hospital. Yeah. Oh shit. Yeah. It's, it's right. It's a, it's a poison essentially. So using wasp spray or any other type of bug spray on humans is illegal in most states and could result in civil lawsuits, even when used in a self-defense situation. So, okay. I don't care if it's between it's between a civil lawsuit and death. I'll take it. Well, right. I mean, that that's kind of the the judgment everyone's going to have to to make. But because it is against the law, um, written in most most states, you wouldn't necessarily be charged criminally if it's a self-defense situation. However, you do open yourself up to civil liability. And then finally, the last thing that that came across was saying that wasp spray is specifically designed to kill small insects and not deter human assailants. So there's no guarantee basically. Right. So if you use it, you know, you're opening yourself up to civil liability. There's a chance that you could kill the person if they have a reaction to, they need to go to the hospital. So I would say Kim, that I would not use wasp spray unless it's absolutely a last resort. Yeah. Like it's life or death. You're in the grips of death and then, you know, then all rules are out the window. You know, buy yourself a good pepper spray and if that's what you want to carry and, you know. So I'm going to start keeping wasp spray nearby. That's what I've decided. Okay. All right. So, Kim, we owe you an apology because we kind of made fun of your question, but turns out you were right, girl. You were right. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's actually, I as I was typing it in the in the Google search, it was like the first thing that popped up. I said, is wasp spray, I forget how I was typing it, is wasp spray. Yeah, like the popular searches. Yeah. Is it like, yeah, is it like effective versus pepper? I was like, holy shit, somebody else like researched it. So I guess it's a thing. So Yeah, it's a thing. Yeah. So, all right, Kim. So, you know. There's, there's your answer, Kim. There you go. So this week, we're going to be discussing a case that I think you'll find pretty interesting. It's been suggested by actually by three separate listeners, so... It is the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. Oh, okay. So this case was suggested by Jolene, Kim, and David. So thank you all for your suggestion. Yeah, thank you very much. I was, you know, obviously everyone to some degree is familiar with, you know, the right. disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. But right. I had never really looked into all of the details surrounding it and, you know, just kind of his life and stuff. Man, I learned a lot of stuff, so. Really? Okay. We'll get to it. And also, this is going to be a two-parter, as I'm sure none of you will be surprised because there's a lot. A lot of information, yeah. I honestly probably could have made it three parts, but I was like, let's let's stick to the facts here because, you know, there's so many 
different. Oh, yeah. And we'll, we will touch on the different kind of suggestions of what happened to him. Right, like or the, the theories. Conspira- yeah, conspiracy theories or, yeah. But I'm kind of only going to touch on the, the main ones because, you know, if, if we touched on all of them, we'd be here forever. Right. I know years ago there was like a whole, back when regular TV was on, Geraldo. I don't know if you remember Geraldo. I'm going to talk You're about gonna that. You're going to talk about it? He yeah, did a whole. Briefly, briefly. Yeah, he did like a whole special on. I won't, you know, I'll, I'll let you talk about it when we get to it. But it was like watching it, and then at the end, you're like, "What a letdown!" Right. Like, okay. I've heard of that episode of Geraldo, but I've yeah. never actually watched it myself. So I watched it just for shits and giggles because it, it really doesn't pertain to this. But you know, no, just right. for shits and giggles. And yeah. man, I was like, imagine watching this shit live. What a fucking letdown! That was probably the, one of the first times I said, "I can't get that time back." Yeah. So I got my information for this episode from various news articles, as well as the FBI files for this case. They're actually available online, so I will link oh, wow, them okay. cool. in the show notes. I read every single page. Okay. It was um, fascinating. Quite a lot of reading. Quite a lot of reading. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages. I was going to say, that's probably a huge file, for sure. I went down a rabbit hole, for sure. And obviously, not everything in the file is really that pertinent, but... Right, yeah. There's a lot of, I'm sure, legal mumbo-jumbo and stuff. Also, it's actually a pretty decent documentary. It's called Killing Jimmy Hoffa. It's pretty short, maybe like an hour long. It is on Amazon Prime, so if anyone's a Prime member, you can watch it for free there, or you can buy it if you're not, but... Okay. I thought it was a pretty decent... They also go into a lot of the history of the time and stuff, so I thought it was pretty interesting. Right. I'll link all that in the show notes, though, so if you guys want to check it out, you can. James Riddle Hoffa was born on Valentine's Day in 1913. So considering what ends up happening to him, the irony of his middle name is not lost on me. Okay. His life is literally a riddle. His death is a riddle and his middle name is Riddle. Riddle, yeah. I didn't know his middle name was Riddle. So as it turns out, Riddle was actually his mother's maiden name. So that's why it became his Uh, middle name. Okay. Okay. So Jimmy was born in Brazil, Indiana, to John and Viola Hoffa. His father was Pennsylvania Dutch, and his mother was of Irish descent. Sadly, when Jimmy was only seven years old, his dad developed a severe lung disease and died. Hmm. Following his father's death, the family decided to move to Detroit, Michigan in 1924, where there were more opportunities to make a living. After his father's death, his mother really struggled to make ends meet, and she ended up taking a neighbor's laundry in order to survive. Right. Because of this, Jimmy was forced to drop out of school at 14 to begin working at a grocery store in order to help help support his family. Right. Okay. So in 1929, the Great Depression hit, and Detroit was hit harder than almost any other city within the U.S., More than half of the city lost their jobs, and many people were starving as a result. Thousands of people would stand in line to interview for only one job opening at a time. Considering this, Jimmy was pretty lucky because he got a job working within a Kroger warehouse unloading crates. So I had no idea that Kroger has been around this long. Yeah, I didn't know that either. And apparently they used to really be fucked up employers. Okay. After doing, I mean, obviously, all the people I'm sure that were running it at this time are dead by now, but right. after reading about a lot of this, I was like, man, this makes me never want to shop at Kroger again. Really? So during this time, because it's the Great Depression, crime is also has flourished because it's a way for people to make ends meet. Of course. And as a result of the Great Depression, the prevalence of organized crime exploded. Jimmy saw firsthand how big business and the government were taking advantage of those who were less fortunate. And like many others during this time, he admired the criminals such as Al Capone, Bugsy Malone, all those guys, mm. which, you know, if you if you don't know who Al Capone is, go back to our episode. <laughs> so a lot of people admired these organized criminals during this time because they kind of had this facade of sticking it to the very institutions who were oppressing people like Right. Oppressing the common man. So upon beginning work, Jimmy realized that the grocery chain he worked for was not paying its employees a living wage. So he was actually working in the um, warehouse of Kroger, and he basically was working to help load the trucks. Okay. Additionally, the working conditions were poor. 
And when employees complained, they were typically quickly fired and just replaced because there was more people that needed jobs than openings. Right. Although Jimmy was only a teenager, he began pushing his co-workers to form a workers' union. That way, they could join forces and strike to try and improve their pay and working conditions. So Jimmy recognized that if they all banded together, the company wouldn't be able to afford to fire all of them at once. So Jimmy was known to be a very gregarious and approachable teen because he's only 19. Right. Because of this and his kind of courageousness to stick it to the man, he quickly rose to a leadership position within the union. So he was at 19 was organizing strikes and all sorts of all sorts of shit. So it's kind of interesting because he ends up being a kind of a pretty shitty guy. But it's interesting how he started out. I guess as a lot of criminals do, you start out for the right reasons and then it slowly becomes about something else, you know? Right, yeah. He was trying to make a better environment for the workers and stuff, but then... But then he ends up fucking him over, so... Yeah, well, yeah, well. However, in 1932, when Jimmy was only 19, he got into an altercation with a shift foreman who Jimmy claimed was abusive towards the employees. Jimmy refused to work for that man and ultimately quit in order to focus on his union activities. It was at this point that he was invited to become an organizer within the local 299 of the Teamsters Union in Detroit. The International Brotherhood of Teamsters was officially formed in 1903, but had been in existence since 1887. Damn. So I never knew that. I, I obviously everyone's heard of the Teamsters. Yeah. But I didn't realize they had been around that long. 1887. Jeez. Okay. The union was widespread, and its members consisted of blue-collar workers in both the public and private sectors. The Teamsters were known to fight for higher wages, shorter hours, and implementation of better working conditions. In 1933, the union consisted of 75,000 members, which at that time was a lot. But today, it consists of over 1 million members. It has roughly about 1.5 million members. I think they're one of the largest unions in the... Yeah, they definitely are. At least the country, if not the world. So in March of 1937, Jimmy met a woman named Josephine Pozowak. Okay. While at a strike action. So Josephine had been working for a laundry service and was only being paid 17 cents an hour. Oh. So Josephine and her fellow employees picketed their employer in an effort to raise their wages. Upon meeting, the two quickly fell in love, and after dating for only six months, the couple wed on September 25th, 1937, when Jimmy was only 25 years old. Within two years, the couple was able to purchase a small home in northwestern Detroit. At the time, the home only cost the couple $6,800. A three-bedroom house in Detroit. Hmm. Wild, isn't Six grand. Isn't yeah. that crazy? You can't even get a car for that now. No. The couple would go on to have two children, a daughter who they named Barbara Ann Hoffa, and a son who they named James P. Hoffa after his father. While working for the Teamsters, Jimmy Hoffa focused on unionizing various groups of truckers who were also attempting to improve their working conditions at the time, Due to Jimmy's work, the union actually grew from 75,000 members to a whopping 420,000 members by 1939. Holy. So he grew that shit a lot. Okay. So Jimmy was very persuasive and very good at his job. By this time, the Teamsters had become one of the most powerful unions within the U.S., frequently organizing workers' strikes all across the country. Wow. During the 1930s, mafia activity was at its height within the area. And actually, the Detroit mob at the time was considered to be one of the most powerful and well-organized mafia enterprises in the country. Really? Yeah, because you, you oh. always hear about like the New York mob and stuff, so you think it's them. New York and Chicago, yeah. Apparently, Detroit was wow, the best okay. at the time. All right. Okay. And the Detroit mob were closely tied to the trucking industry as they used truckers to smuggle their illegal contraband. Due to this, in order to organize the trucking workers, Jimmy was forced to work closely with mafia members as well. Okay. In order to get the working accommodations that he and the truckers wanted, Jimmy made certain deals with various mafia families. 
The first documented proof of Jimmy being affiliated with the mob was in 1937, shortly after his marriage to Josephine. Jimmy was still friends with an ex-girlfriend of his who introduced him to a known mafia member by the name of Frankie Coppola, and the two became fast friends. Frankie was good friends with another mobster by the name of Santo Perone. Santo and his men were often hired by corporations to beat the shit out of the unionized workers who were protesting. Okay. So the the big corporations that Jimmy's unions were protesting, they would hire out the mob to basically, as people were picketing, they would right. come and just whoop the shit out of these people oh, to basically yeah. put an end to their picketing like, and get them back to work. Right. So the mob kind of played both sides of the whole union thing. Of course. Whoever was paying them, they were working for. So if it was the corporation, cool. If it was the unions who paid them yeah. to beat the shit or blow up the corporate people then they would do that. Gotcha, okay. Jimmy approached Santo and asked him not to work for Kroger any longer so that his protests would succeed and the company would have no choice but to comply with the employees' demands. So Kroger was paying the mob to beat Mm -hmm. the shit out of its employees to get them back to work. And since Jimmy kind of had this good relationship with Santo Perone, who was kind of high up in the mafia in Detroit, he was like, listen, what if we pay you? And, right. you know, you're kind of my buddy. And when Kroger approaches you, you don't take the job anymore. Okay. So that's how Jimmy's... That's kind of his introduction or... Yeah, and that's how he worked his way up within the union because, you know, he's his picketing is slowly succeeding because... Succeeding because nobody's getting their ass beat anymore. Right. Okay. After this, Jimmy Hoffa would pay the mob out of the union's funds to attack anyone who got in the way of the Teamsters, including employees who refused to join the union. (laughs) So Jimmy at first was, you know, all for helping the common man, but then it it became, oh, if you're not going to join the union, then I'm going to make you join the union. Right. So he would also pay the mob to attack employers who refused to accept the union's demands. So he would have bombs put in these people's cars, have them shot, have them beat, have them all sorts of stuff. Okay. In exchange, the Teamsters truckers would distribute the mafia's drugs, mainly heroin. In fact, it is estimated that the Teamsters were integral in the development of the international drug trade within the U.S. Wow. Okay. So heroin was their drug, huh? Yeah. Cause, mainly. Cause they, heroin... they, did, they did all drugs, but, but heroin right. was like their, their big seller, if you will. Because heroin was kind of taboo for like the New York mobs and it was kind of always looked down upon, you know. Yeah, that's how they were smuggling it across the country was through these trucking routes. trucks, okay. Throughout the 30s and 40s, Jimmy continued expanding the Teamsters Union throughout the U.S. Strangely, despite the fact that Jimmy himself had never been a trucker in his life, because remember, he's, he never drove the trucks. He just worked in this warehouse. Right. In December of 1946, when Jimmy was only 33, he became president of the local 299 in Detroit, and the 299 was just all for truckers. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's interesting that he became the president and yet he didn't even know what it was like to be a trucker. Wasn't even a trucker. (laughs) Following his presidency, Jimmy continued to work his way up the union ladder, eventually becoming the head of all of the Michigan Teamsters group. So he basically became the head of Michigan Teamsters. Teamsters. Okay. In 1943, Jimmy met a nine-year-old boy named Chucky O'Brien. Chucky's father, Charles O'Brien, was a driver and a bodyguard for a mobster by the name of Charles Benaggio. However, when Chucky was seven years old, his father abandoned the family. Mm. When Jimmy met Chucky in 1943, he felt bad that Chucky had no paternal influence, and the two struck up a very close friendship. Eventually, Jimmy would go on to consider Chucky to be his foster son, so he referred to him as his his adopted son. Okay. And Chucky worked for Jimmy as his most trusted assistant. He later explained, quote, I'd be with him. If something had to be done, I did it. So you can imagine, I'm sure, what kind of Mm -hmm. shit he was doing. Oh, yeah. It is also alleged that Jimmy had an affair with Chucky's mother, although that's never been confirmed. But supposedly that's why they became so close is because Jimmy was Uh, banging his mom. Okay. So during this time... The U.S. entered World War II. And incredibly, Jimmy was so charismatic and persuasive that he was able to talk his way out of the draft. 
Wow. Isn't that wild? That's crazy. Because <laughs> everybody got called. So he was able to convince the U.S. government that his work as a union leader was far more valuable than his military service would be, as his truckers were who kept the freight running smoothly throughout the country during the war. Right. So... A valid argument. Yeah, and that so he said, that's my contribution to the war effort. And the government agreed with him. They were like, you're right. So they never drafted him. Wow, okay. Because of this, Jimmy was never forced to serve in the war, so he never served in World War II, like, at all. In 1952, the Teamsters president, Daniel Tobin, retired, and a new president was to be voted in at the Teamsters convention in Los Angeles of that year. Prior to Tobin's retirement, Jimmy had used his influence to help oust Tobin. Oh. Because many of the union members and the leadership were unhappy with his kind of leadership at the time. Tobin was at odds with his vice president, a man by the name of Dave Beck. And Beck wished to basically supplant Tobin's leadership. Okay. Jimmy used his persuasiveness to secure the central state support of David Beck. And ultimately, he was voted in as president, despite Tobin's efforts to kind of thwart those plans. So basically, Tobin was president. They kind of did a uh, backstabby move. Okay. And now Beck's president. Okay. However, Hoffa didn't secure Beck's leadership purely out of the kindness of his heart. Shocker. He had made a deal with Beck that if he were to be voted in as president, then Beck would have to select Jimmy to be his vice president. Okay. After becoming vice president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, so now he's vice president of it nationwide. Right. The headquarters was moved from Indianapolis to Washington, D.C. So due to this, Jimmy was kind of forced to spend a majority of his time away from his family in Detroit. Okay. As it turned out, Dave Beck would only be the Teamsters president for five years. As shortly after becoming president, he began to be investigated by the U.S. Senate Select Committee on improper activities in the labor or management field. Oh, boy. This was also known as the McClellan Committee. Okay. As it was led by a man named John L. McClellan. Okay. So, or I'm sorry, McClellan. The committee was formed by the Senate in January of 1957, and its members were charged with studying criminal activity, which was occurring within the field of labor management relations. So basically, they knew that the unions were into some sketchy, illegal shit. Okay. This committee was basically started to look into it. Gotcha. After their pretty thorough investigation, they were to work to create laws which would put a stop to that criminal activity in the future. Okay. In March of 1957, they called Dave Beck and Jimmy Hoffa to testify about their involvement in any illegal activities as the Teamsters president and vice president. So interestingly, Robert Kennedy was a part of this. Oh, the panel. The committee. Okay. And he did not like Jimmy Hoffa. Okay. So he harshly interrogated Beck about $332,000, which was missing from the Teamsters treasury, and it couldn't be accounted for. So okay. he's like, where did this money go then? That's the money, I'm assuming, that was paid to the mobsters. Yeah. Okay. Well, allegedly. Well, allegedly. So Beck pled the fifth 117 times within his testimony. So basically, Robert Kennedy kept kind of hounding him, and he would just say, I plead the fifth. I plead yeah. the fifth. I plead the fifth. Which is retarded because why even have a hearing if the person's not going to have to answer? Like, right. You know, so. So Jimmy did the same thing when he was testifying. He he would he would kind of give some, it's, it's actually kind of worth watching the um, old video of it because right. you can see it's palpable how much Kennedy and Hoffa hate each other. Really? And... There is certain moments where Jimmy will answer, but he gives, like, these smart-ass responses, which is pretty funny, like, to watch. Okay. But he, on all the, like, major questions, he was pleading the fifth. Right. So, following this, Beck was indicted on charges of embezzlement and labor racketeering, as despite his refusal to answer the committee's questions, it was proven that Beck had stolen $1,900 from the sale of a Teamsters-owned Cadillac. 
So even though they knew there was more illegal activity going on, that was really the only thing they could pin on him. So they got him evidence. for stealing nineteen hundred bucks, but that three hundred and sixty whatever thousand dollars, no clue. They, you know, okay. yeah, yeah, because he re- he right. refused yeah. to answer any questions okay. about it, and they couldn't prove on paper that he he was the one who right. took it. Wow, crazy. Later that year, it was determined that Beck had not been paying his taxes, so he was also convicted of income tax evasion. The old Al Capone route. You always got to pay your taxes, folks. Got to pay your taxes. They want their money. The government's always going to get what's theirs. Yep, they want their money. So Beck appealed his sentence, but was still forced to serve three years in federal prison. During his legal troubles, Jimmy began challenging his leadership. Because, you know, old Jimmy saw an opportunity. Oh, yeah. The door opened. So eventually, Beck was forced to step down as president of the Teamsters, and in 1957, Jimmy took over as president after being voted in at the Teamsters convention in none other than Miami, Florida. Ooh, what year was that? 91? 1957. 57. Despite the fact that these Senate hearings had also exposed Jimmy as being corrupt as well, they still voted him in. Upon learning that Jimmy Hoffa had taken over as president, the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations worked to vote the Teamsters out of their organization. So basically, the AFL-CIO is the major umbrella organization that all of these smaller unions fall under. So like the Teamsters falls under it and all the other unions within the country if that makes sense. Is it a, gover- is it a government entity, no. though, or it's a private? Okay. It's private, but it's ev- all of... It's like the main union. It's like the, Right, all the, of the, the other unions okay. fall under this. Gotcha, okay. They basically, because obviously, like I said, the committee showed that right. Jimmy was corrupt, so this umbrella organization, the AFL-CIO, was like, we don't want the Teamsters part of this if because we don't want it affecting the rest of us, you know? Right. So they worked to vote the Teamsters out of their organization, at that year's convention, George Meany, so he was the president of the of the AFL-CIO, he changed the organization's bylaws to state that if any union member had pled the fifth during a corruption investigation, that they were no longer allowed to hold any sort of leadership position within the organization. Okay. So basically, that was geared towards... Yeah, that was, toward, that was the loophole, or yeah, that was like the catch to get him out. Right to get pop out. Okay. So Meany told the Teamsters that they could remain a part of the AFL-CIO as long as Jimmy agreed to step down as president. I'm sure you'll be shocked to hear that Jimmy refused to do that. Oh my God, I'm glad I'm sitting down. And the Teamsters were effectively kicked out of the AFL-CIO. So now they're they're out of that. They're, they're still a union, but they're out of that umbrella. Right. Okay. On March 14th, 1957... Jimmy was finally arrested because within the McClellan Committee's investigation, he had evidently tried to bribe an aide. So Jimmy pled not guilty and denied ever trying to bribe the aide, although it was caught on film. So he basically went to this aide and offered to pay him if he would basically spy on the committee. Gotcha. Okay. And, you know, give him insider information. But this this aide ended up going to the government and being like, yo, Jimmy Hoffa is trying to bribe Mm. me. So they've set up surveillance. So the guy went to Jimmy and was like, okay, I'll meet you here. Like, pay me. And it was all a setup. So they, they caught it on oh. film, him paying him. But he still said, oh, I, I didn't do that. That's not what I was doing. <laughs> to deny it till death. So he was actually found not guilty of that. Okay. However, the bribery charge allowed the police to look further into Jimmy's activities. And weeks later, he was charged with other crimes. However, none of these charges seemed to stick, and eventually Jimmy was just a free man, once again. Okay. Three years later, in 1960, John F. Kennedy was elected president, and he was determined to put Jimmy behind bars. Mm-hmm. He appointed his younger brother, good old Robert Kennedy, who already hated himself some Jimmy Hoffa. Uh-huh. So he appointed him as attorney general, and he basically for all intents and purposes, declared war against or- not only organized crime, but Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, I remember reading that. Or uh, Supposedly he had a list of all of his, um, kind of a hit list of all the main members of the mafia and stuff that he wanted to go after. To go after, and Jimmy Hoffa was number one. 
That's how much he hated Jimmy Hoffa. Wow, okay. It is well known that Hoffa absolutely hated the Kennedys as he felt that they were a part of the wealthy elite who built their empire upon the backs of the average blue-collar worker, which he's not wrong. No, he's not. So they were kind of a silver spoon family, so I I can understand that. Yeah. In May of 1963, Hoffa was indicted once again, (laughs) this time for jury tampering, as during his previous trial for conspiracy in Nashville, Tennessee, he apparently bribed a jury member. So he just he just loved to do the bribings. Well, that's how he got. That's how he was found not guilty at all his other trials. Right. I'm sure. So, so but he was found guilty of bribing this jury member. Okay. Well. So a year later, on March fourth, nineteen sixty four, he was sentenced to eight years in prison and a ten thousand dollar fine. Then on July twenty sixth, nineteen sixty four, while he was out on bail, Jimmy was convicted of another crime in Chicago, Illinois. He was found guilty of one count of conspiracy and three counts of mail and wire fraud for improper use of the Teamsters pension fund. So essentially, he'd been stealing from the union workers' pensions to pay off the mob. So he was sentenced to five years in prison, meaning that now Jimmy Hoffa would have to serve 13 years in prison. Jimmy immediately began attempting to appeal his convictions from jail, but was ultimately unsuccessful. So he was finally forced to begin serving his 13-year sentence on March 7, 1967, at the Lewisburg's Federal Penitentiary in Pennsylvania. All right. Additionally, many historians and academics believe that Jimmy Hoffa was also actively involved in the plot to assassinate President John F. Kennedy during this time. Okay although that had never been proven. All right. But there's a lot of evidence that shows that he had something to do with that. Really? Yeah. And I'll talk a little more about it. So when Jimmy entered prison, his longtime friend, Frank Fitzsimmons, was named acting president while Jimmy was in jail. Frank had been a member of the local 299 in Detroit, and was extremely loyal to Jimmy, as Jimmy was the one who'd kind of assisted him in gaining high positions within the Teamsters. Because of this, Jimmy believed he'd be able to control Frank from prison and still basically lead the Teamsters, even though he was in jail. Right. However, after becoming acting president, Frank distanced himself from Jimmy and refused to follow any of Jimmy's orders. Okay. Which, as I'm sure you can imagine, made Jimmy very, very mad. Yeah. Instead, Frank decided to officially change the administration structure within the Teamsters so that the president no longer held as much power and was less able to abuse his power. So that's actually kind of cool that he did that. Yeah, okay. Despite this, for years, Jimmy refused to officially step down as president. That is until four years later in December of 1971 when the Teamsters offered him a deal that he couldn't refuse. If he agreed to step down, the Teamsters would give Jimmy a $1.75 million termination settlement. Wow. So, you know, in, in 71, that's a lot that's of money. That's a ton of money. I mean, that's a lot of money now, but... No, yeah, but... Oof. That settlement would be covered by the Teamsters Retirement and Family Protection Plan. With this, Jimmy Hoffa finally stepped down as president, and Frank Fitzsimmons was officially elected president of the Teamsters, even though he'd been running it already. Right, okay. And Jimmy was still in prison at this time. Right. Okay. During this same time, Richard Nixon had been elected president because, obviously, JFK Mm -hmm. was assassinated. Right. And on December 23rd, 1971, he decided to commute Jimmy's prison sentence. What? So I didn't know this. I didn't know that either. So after serving less than five years of his 13-year sentence, Jimmy was released from federal prison. Wow. Okay. Interestingly, following this, the Teamsters then supported Nixon during his re-election campaign of 1972. Oh. Why do you think he commuted his sentence? That's so weird. Yeah, but if he was already, if he wasn't part of the, if he wasn't the president anymore, like he was out of it. He still had a very big. Influence, I guess. Influence. Okay. So I was going to say, because the new president is, is like trying to make the changes. So, so Nix, Nixon basically was like, I'll commute your sentence if you support me when re-election time comes. So I guess Hoffa still had that kind of pull within yeah. the Teamsters. Okay. Oh, right. yeah. Okay. Because he was basically a hero within the Teamsters organization. So right. I think 
And, you know, everything within the Teamsters is done by, like, Democratic voting right. sort of thing. So right. I think he was always a threat to whoever was leading because he was so popular amongst the actual blue-collar union workers right. that he could kind of, whether he was president or not, he could get whatever right. he wanted, he like, passed and done. Right, okay. Makes sense. So up until this point, the Teamsters had pretty much not always, but usually supported Democratic nominees. So, of course, that left many people to assume that Hoffa and the Teamsters organization had somehow bribed Nixon in order to free Jimmy Hoffa. Right. Okay. Which, come on, that's alleged, but I think we can all read between the lines there. Right. However, there was a caveat to Jimmy's freedom. A condition of his release stated that Jimmy could not, quote, engage in the direct or indirect management of any labor organization until the year 1980. Upon leaving prison, Jimmy was informed of this condition and was infuriated. Okay. He claimed he'd never agreed to such a condition, and he believed his old friend Frank Fitzsimmons was behind it, as he feared that Jimmy would attempt to steal the presidency back from him. Okay. Fitzsimmons avidly denied that that was true, and he claimed he had no knowledge or part in the condition being imposed on Jimmy. Okay. Although we will never know the truth. Right. Ultimately, Jimmy sued the federal government in an attempt to have the condition removed, but he lost as the court determined that Nixon had been within his presidential rights to impose the restriction on Jimmy as his imprisonment had been due to his misconduct as a Teamsters official in the first place. <laughs> Despite this, Jimmy still continued to plot how to regain his power within the Teamsters organization, as many of its leadership and its members had turned against him by this point. So now a lot of people are like, nah, we don't want you back as president. Kind of they're starting to turn on him. Because of this, Jimmy decided to start once again from the ground up within the organization and returned to the local 299 in Detroit to try and kind of win back the support that he'd lost. In the meantime, Jimmy published two books, The Trials of Jimmy Hoffa, which he'd written from prison in 1970, and Hoffa, The Real Story, which he published in 1975. So, interesting. Mm -hmm. Hoffa's plan to take back control of the Teamsters was not met with support from the mafia, as while Jimmy had been in prison, he'd gotten into a tiff with his former friend, Anthony Provenzano, also known Mm. as Tony Pro. Okay who'd been serving time within the same prison with Hoffa at the time. Okay. Anthony had been Jimmy's Teamsters vice president, actually, during Jimmy's second term as president. So they were pretty close friends. Okay. Anthony was a well-respected capo within the New York City-based Genovese crime family and was Mm. also a Teamsters local leader in New Jersey following his release from prison. In 1973 and 74, Jimmy had asked Anthony to support his bid for presidency, but Anthony refused both times. He reportedly told Jimmy that if he continued to try to regain his presidency within the Teamsters, he would pull his guts out and kidnap his grandchildren. Oh, okay. So he really was like, I ain't going to help you, bro. Wow. Okay. These were not empty threats because Anthony had previously ordered the murders of two of his other Teamster opponents. And anyone who dared speak out against him was basically either murdered or severely beaten the sh- got beat. the shit beat out of them. Wow. Y- you, don't, you don't mess with the mafia. No, you sure don't. Anthony Giacalone and his younger brother Vito were high up within the Detroit mafia and they told Jimmy that they'd work to repair the relationship between him and his former friend, Anthony Pro or Tony Pro. Okay. By this time, Jimmy and his wife had purchased a second home on Lake Orion in Michigan. So the Jackaloni brothers visited Jimmy at his Lake Orion home three separate times, attempting to kind of mediate the situation between Jimmy and Tony Pro. Okay. Despite their promises that they were attempting to repair the situation... Jimmy's son later recalled that Jimmy was suspicious that something else may be afoot, and he seemed to get more and more uneasy each time the Giacalone brothers came to his home. Hmm. James Jr. later stated, quote, Dad was pushing so hard to get back in office. I was increasingly afraid that the mob would do something about it. Finally, the Giacalone brothers 
told Jimmy that Tony Pro was ready to meet and make peace with Jimmy. They set up a meeting for July 30, 1975, at a restaurant in Bloomfield Township called Marcus Red Fox, and told Jimmy to be there at 2 p.m. James Jr., Jimmy's son, told his dad not to go, as he feared the meeting was a setup and their real intention was to murder Jimmy. Okay. Despite his son's warnings, Jimmy left his home at 1.15 p.m. Before making his way to the restaurant, he stopped by his friend, Louis Linto's office. Lewis wasn't there, but Jimmy spoke to some of the employees and left a message for Lewis. Because remember, this is before cell phones, so... Right, yeah. If you miss him, you miss him. Mm-hmm. Between 2.15 and 2.30, Jimmy called his wife from a payphone located out front of a store called Damon Hardware, which was located right behind the restaurant he was supposed to meet Tony Pro at. He was annoyed and told his wife that he'd shown up to the restaurant and Tony Pro had never shown up. He asked if she'd heard from anyone and if the time of the meeting was possibly changed because, once again, there was no cell phone. So he's like, did they call the house? Right. Okay. She explained that no one had called the house or left a message of any sort. He told her he'd be home for dinner by four and he would grill them some some steaks for dinner. Following his phone call, several of the restaurant's patrons recalled seeing Hoffa pacing in front of his car within the parking lot. Two men who knew Hoffa later confirmed that they'd happened to walk by during this time and had stopped to chat with Hoffa for a few minutes. Between 2.30 and 2.45, Jimmy then made another phone call from the payphone, this time to his friend Lewis, whose office he'd tried to stop by earlier. He asked if Lewis had heard anything from the Jackaloni brothers and informed him, too, that he'd been stood up by Tony Pro and the Jackaloni brothers. He reportedly stated, quote, the bastards are an hour and a half late to meet me, which I just like that that's <laughs> those. He's like, <laughs> okay. those bastards. Bastards. So Lewis told Jimmy he should leave and stop by his office on his way home. However, Jimmy never showed up. Mm. Following this phone call, a truck driver named Robert Hall Odell later reported to the FBI that he'd seen Jimmy getting into a maroon Lincoln or Mercury with three other men. One of the men he identified as Chucky Odell, which is Jimmy's foster son. Right. The driver claimed the car had pulled out of the parking lot with all four men inside and a shotgun or a rifle was laying under a blanket. The witness later agreed to take a polygraph test based on his statement and the results showed that he was being truthful. Mm. How do you see the shotgun? I guess because I think he was a trucker, so he was higher up. So I think he could like see down into the vehicle possibly. Okay. All right. When Jimmy never showed up to Lewis's office, Lewis phoned Jimmy's house. Jimmy's wife told him that Jimmy had never returned home and she was worried about his safety. He told Josephine, quote, I'll do some checking and get back to you. From there, Lewis phoned several people, including one of the Jackaloni brothers, but had no luck in locating Jimmy. Finally, he drove to the Hoffa's lake house and arrived at approximately 11 p.m. They, along with another female friend, stayed up the entire night waiting for Jimmy to return. All right. At 7 a.m. the next morning, Jimmy's wife called her son and daughter. She explained that she was worried because Jimmy had not returned home the following evening as he had said he would. Both Jimmy's daughter and son rushed over to their mother's house. On the way there, Jimmy's daughter Barbara claimed that she had a vision. In this vision... She saw her father slumped over wearing a dark-colored polo. In her vision, it was clear to Barbara that her father was dead. When she arrived to her parents' lake house, Barbara told her mother about her vision, and her mother confirmed that Jimmy had been wearing the exact outfit that Barbara described in her vision. Oh, boy. And Barbara had had no way of knowing what he was wearing, you know? Right. Okay. At 7.20 a.m., Lewis made his way to the Marcus Red Fox restaurant to look for Jimmy's car. He located Mm -hmm. it sitting in the parking lot. The car was unlocked, but Jimmy was nowhere to be found. Lewis decided to notify the Michigan State Police, who arrived at the scene shortly. However, after a brief investigation, it was decided that the FBI was better equipped to handle the investigation. Oh, boy. At 6 p.m., the state police made their way to the Hoffa's vacation home, and his son, James, officially filed a missing persons report. The Hoffa family offered a $200,000 reward for any information leading to Jimmy's whereabouts. 
Once the FBI began investigating Jimmy's disappearance, they spoke to the Giacalone brothers, who had allegedly set up this meeting between Jimmy and Tony Pro. When they spoke to the FBI, both brothers denied knowing of or setting up any meeting between Jimmy or Tony Pro. They were like, we never did that. Even though his wife and everybody was like, yeah, they did. And they were like, nah. Yeah. Right. We don't know what you're talking about. So this is where we're going to leave it for part one. All right. So next episode, we'll we'll talk more about the investigation. And then we'll eventually get to all the kind of theories of... Um, all right what happened because for those of you i'm sure everyone knows but if there's one or two of you out there that don't they never found him so right even to this day yeah so we do have a question okay this question is from randy so hi randy hey randy she said it always pains this is a question for you by the way okay it always pains me to see animals unrestrained in cars or in truck beds I was curious if you've had the unfortunate experience of coming across any vehicular homicides involving animals. Yes, I have. We've even had a couple police uh, canine units get involved in crashes where they had to, um, luckily the dogs were okay, they had to be taken to the vet, but um, not too many. I'm trying to think, uh, usually it's the, the dogs inside, like in the back seat. There was one that unfortunately did not survive, but neither did the, the driver, so... But only a, a couple of times that, that I recall ever seeing it. But yeah, they, I know they sell those harnesses and, and stuff like that you can kind of. I was going to ask, because I'm pretty sure, at least in, I know it is in California. I don't know about other states, but it's, I think if you have your pet in the truck bed, you have to have them tied up. They can't just be like loose in there. Oh, really? I I never had one that was in a truck bed. I had the, the one was actually the one that survived was uh, in a carrier was in a um those like the plastic like, ones cage carriers yeah those plastic ones or whatever they needed to go to the vet you know they were kind of banged up but they survived and then there was one that didn't survive but the the car was totally uh destroyed and like i said the the yeah like no one survived yeah nobody survived so i've never had one that like was ever seat belted in or you know they make those harnesses that you can kind of clip into the right. seat belts and stuff um so i don't know how effective those things are but it's only happened uh couple of times that, that I ever experienced. So. I would imagine just from knowing general physics that it, it would be some, I mean, obviously there's no guarantee that you're ever going to survive an accident, but I would imagine if, if the dog is, you know, in like some sort of seatbelt, it's probably more likely than if they're not. It's going to keep them in place for the most part. And that's, and that's basically how seatbelts work. They kind of keep you in place um, as opposed to unrestrained, you know, people or, or animals, uh, you know, if like a car starts spinning or God forbid it rolls. Then naturally, if you're if you're not restrained, you're going to be bouncing around or you know possibly ejected. Right. That goes for items in your car too. Like that was a big thing in in our police cars. We always carried like these big metal clipboards and and stuff so that we can write down like information or write down the calls and stuff. And then um, kind of like talking to other officers. Like I forget who it was that told me, but basically, if you get into a crash, all that stuff like starts flying around the cabin as well. And it can hurt you. Yeah. So we started making a conscious effort to not have, like, if we had a clipboard, like, we would Velcro it. We would make, like, boxes and stuff. And, and then once we got computers and then you had the, the, the computer, the, like, the computer mount and stuff, that caused more injuries to officers because, you know, it takes away space and it's right there and you slam into it and stuff. So, you know, it's just crashes are bad. Like, the more you can do to kind of protect yourself, but ultimately, you know, it's. But you're saying you would suggest if you have a, a pet that you travel with frequently, get one of those pet harnesses. Absolutely. Yeah. At least a pet harness. If not, I know I've seen them. They make like little, um, they're not boxes. They're like kind of like beds clip in. They have different kinds that you can actually strap them in or they actually have like netting and stuff in them to kind of keep them in place. So they're like, there's a couple different things out there. But I mean, I've never, like I said, I only had a couple where there was animals involved. And I'm sure it happens more frequently across the country um, than what I saw. But yeah, I would um, at the least try to clip them in somehow, like to the seatbelt or to kind of keep them in place so that if, God forbid, you are in a crash and the car starts spinning around or whatever, it kind of holds them in place, you know, so. Well, there you have it, Randy. If you if you have a doggy, get get him a good old doggy seatbelt. Yeah, I mean. Or a kitty, whatever. Right. Or even those um, those travel carriers. Especially if it's like in place, like 
you're able to like secure that strap down, down, strap yeah. it down They're You know, they're going to bounce around and it may get hurt, but they're going to be confined to that area. So, you know, that the one that did survive the, the one crash I did have, they were in, like I said, in that plastic, in that plastic bin, like that plastic carrier. And, right. You know, they needed to like get checked out and stuff, but they were, you know, essentially they survived. So, you know, and I think that's due to, in, to, in part of it being, you know, contained in that little space. And nothing being in there other than, like, I forget, a blanket or a pillow or something in there, but, you know. Well, if you will leave us a little review ski, that'd be great. It definitely really, really helps us so, so much. It helps us get more listeners. Um, mm-hmm. It helps people find us easier. And, you know, that's, that keeps our little show in motion. And we really appreciate it, too. Absolutely. We read all of them, and it gives us a little a little happy... Uh, feeling in our tummies yep definitely so definitely big thanks to everyone who's done it Mm -hmm. also we'll be back next week with part two of the disappearance of jimmy hoffa so yeah it gets definitely gets crazier yeah when you i don't know all of them i'm sure there's going to be ones that we talk about that i'm sure that i haven't heard that are crazy but the few that i have heard has been like they're pretty nutty like people really well and we'll we'll talk also about kind of what we both think is the real what, oh, yeah. you know what our guess is of what happened so well i know what happened um, so <laughs> i'm just kidding i feel strongly of one possibility yeah. that it's it's the most likely scenario i'll yeah, say it's probably the one that most people think of but it's the one that makes the most sense to me so i'm interested right. to see if we agree on what it is all right all right so so come back for that and you know we'll we'll see you again next week bye bye